Deuteronomy 8, let's read, beginning in verse 4 this morning, a little bit that we studied last week, and I uh, want to get the context here. Your clothing did not wear out on you, that is, during these wilderness wanderings, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, of fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. <coughs> the psalmist David said, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. It was the Apostle Paul who wrote in everything, Give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. When our forefathers came to this country, the Pilgrim Fathers, coming to escape from England, the religious persecution there, and landed on the shores at Plymouth Rock, they had come through great adversity, and they had enjoyed the first signs of uh, freedom, and had found after their first fall in this land, a bumper crop, an abundance that they had not known for some time, and they took the time in the midst of their newfound prosperity and liberty to bow their hearts and to thank God. That, of course, set a course for our nation so that ultimately it was recognized that in the third Thursday of every November, the nation would set aside a day of giving praise and thanks to their Creator for what He has given. That day has become a day for food, fun, and football. And we have largely forgotten God in our nation today. For the lesson that we learn as we observe history is that prosperity often leads to complacency. And that in prosperity, even as in adversity, it can be a time where God is forgotten. Yet scripture tells us that we have an obligation to be giving praise to God continually. In everything, Give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That is, it is the will of God in everything for you to give thanks. I often like to tell people that sometimes it is difficult to be thankful, especially when things are rotten, when things are going bad. You don't feel thankful, and it's sometimes hard, as you see bad things that happen to people, it is hard for you to say, boy, I'm thankful for that. But the scripture does not say that you should be thankful in all things. It says in everything give thanks. 
You see, giving thanks in the midst of adversity is a matter of faith. It is a matter of a focus upon a God who is able to make all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And when one focuses upon God, then there is no reason not to rejoice. That's why Paul says rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. Or as he said to the Thessalonian Christians, rejoice evermore. There's never a time in a person's life that he should not give thanks, that he should not utter praise to God, if for nothing else, for the fact that we have a sovereign God who's the master controller of all things and who ultimately is going to gain glory through those things and those circumstances that may happen in and, in and through us. It's God's intention that we be a praising people. Now you can r- roughly divide that everything in which we should give thanks into two categories. There, of course, first of all, are the, ca- the category of the circumstances when they are unfavorable. And then, in contrast to that, the other side of that coinage is that there are times when the circumstances are favorable. We are to give thanks to the Lord when circumstances are unfavorable because He controls the circumstances of our life. And in the midst of those dire circumstances, His character is unchanging. We've got good reason to praise God, a God who is too powerful to ever fail, He is too kind to ever, uh, too loving to ever be unkind. And he is is too bound by his word to ever deceive us. He, He is a God that is totally trustworthy and faithful. And no matter what is taking place in our lives, God has a purpose behind it. And therefore, we can praise him even when circumstances are bad. The second side of that are, of course, the circumstances being favorable. And in a time like that, we can reckon on the fact that God indeed is the source of all things, that he's the giver of every good and perfect gift, and that he has those blessings that he bestows upon us, and we have cause and reason every time he gives us something or does something for us to reckon that we are not worthy of them, yet God in his grace has provided them, and it should invoke praise. Now, if you are a person who has learned something of the habit of praise, something of the habit that the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, so that you give thanks in everything, then you are also being obedient to the admonition to rejoice evermore, to rejoice, and again I say rejoice in the Lord. It It is in keeping with what the psalmist said when he said, it is always appropriate, always fitting to praise the Lord. Our lives should be a life of continual praise to Him. Now in the text that we've been studying the last several weeks, we have seen that God has put the people of Israel through a series of what we would certainly have to call unfavorable circumstances. Circumstances that would humble them. Circumstances that would test them. Circumstances that were, were even to the point that the people got, went hungry. Circumstances where God was disciplining his people. All of this with a purpose, but nevertheless, unfavorable circumstance. 
It was God's hope that the people would learn to trust Him in the midst of that, that they would learn to understand His heart, that they would learn something of His value system, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that they would learn to be obedient, and that they would learn to praise God in the midst of unfavorable circumstances. The people that are being addressed in Deuteronomy are the next generation. They have not had a very good example of this from their parents. Because whenever God put them to the test, they began to, to gripe and complain. There's, there are only uh, two th ways that you can respond in this regard. You can respond in faith, praising God, or you can respond without faith in griping and complaining and grumbling about your lot. Those are your choices. And it's very simple to analyze where a person is in terms of his understanding of God by seeing him go through something unfavorable and then see whether he gripes or whether he glorifies God. Whether he gives praise to God or if he says, poor me. It just is a matter of where a person is spiritually. It's an index to your character, an index to your heart. The person who has truly learned to trust and believe God is the person who, though the circumstances may be difficult, and though the pain is very real, and though the, the loss is, brings great sorrow, nevertheless, the focus of that person is upon the Lord rather than upon his own ills, his own problems, and his own circumstances. God doesn't want the woe is me. What God wants from us is praise the Lord always because God has not changed. God is the same yesterday and today and forever. The interesting thing is that while these people were going through adversity, which had become the parents' focus, God had given them great blessing in the midst of it. And they missed the blessing, and they missed all that God was doing, and even more reason to praise God, because they were not in a praising mood. God, in the midst of their deprivation and all of the rest, God provided them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead them along and to give them guidance. They were a people far more than, than any people in all of history that knew precisely when God wanted them to move and how far he wanted them to go and when they should camp out at night and exactly where they should do it and all of the rest. An incredible blessing of the guidance of the Lord in the decisions that we have to make in life today. We should have guidance like that, right? Our guidance is sure, but not as visual, not as visible as these people experienced. At the same time, while they had gone hungry and had called before the Lord for it, God had provided for them every day of their life with the exception of the, the day that was set aside to rest. God had provided for these people manna from heaven. He had provided manna a manna that came every single day. They gathered it up. There was enough for them to eat and be full and to be satisfied. God, it, God had given a wonderful provision of the manna. And the people almost missed it because they took it for granted and they forgot God in the midst of it. And then, as well, God supplied other needs that we have already seen. The clothes didn't wear out. The shoes di didn't uh, wear out. Their feet didn't swell. Uh, they, they had the provision of God upon them. There are some people even that believe that the, the cloud by day sheltered them at night. And the pillar of fire uh, gave them warmth in the cold desert mornings. God took care of every extingency, even in the midst of the wilderness experience. 
I mean, this is as bad as it gets, okay? You understand that? This is the hardship road. The people, because of their disobedience, chose to do that till the entire generation died out to continue to be in the wilderness because they wouldn't enter in at Kadesh Barnea into the good things the Lord had for them. So it was extended. But even in the extension, the blessing of God was evident everywhere. But do you find the people praising God? Not very often. Most often you find them griping. Now, the people that had grown up in that atmosphere of displeasure, in that atmosphere of criticism, in that atmosphere of griping, God is seeking to shape and mold into a whole new generation, a whole new nation. And he is saying to those people, all right, your parents may have had their gripes. Let me put it down for you, what's, what's, what happened in that wilderness. And so he capsulized the wilderness wanderings, giving the people reason that they should be praising God even in the midst of the time of hardship. Now, I want to say something about this. I think it's important that you grasp it. God wants you to learn the same lesson. And God will put you through wilderness experiences from time to time so that you have the same opportunity to learn and to grow and to understand God's value system and all of the rest of it. So be prepared for that. It's something that is a chunk out of our lives. Everyone will face it. I'd like to show you, though, a text of Scripture that I think epitomizes the kind of attitude we should have at a time like that. And it's over in the book of Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk is where your Bible, st the pages stick together. Clear back over there. If you find uh, Matthew and uh, go south, then uh, you probably can find it. Uh, kind of work backward if you have to. But the book of uh, Habakkuk is kind of a, uh, a little uh, tucked away book that uh, is sometimes a little bit hard to find in your Bibles. But chapter 3 has a wonderful scenario, keeping in mind that these people were farmers. It begins in verse 17, and here's what it says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vine, and the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet. He makes me walk on my high places. Oh, my. Everything's gone. I am down to zero. I, I'm so low I have to reach up to touch bottom. And what do I do? I praise God. Because God isn't changed. Someone has written, Oh, for a faith that will not shrink when pressed by many a foe, that will not tremble on the brink of poverty and woe. A faith that shines more bright and clear when tempests rage without, when in danger knows no fear, in darkness feels no doubt. Lord, 
give us such a faith as this? And then whate'er may come, we'll taste in theirs the hallowed bliss of an eternal home. The Bible says God abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. When the chips are down, when the difficulty is all around you, have you developed the spirit of praise? In the early church, the people rejoiced in their persecution, counting themselves worthy to be suffering for Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul with Silas found themselves beaten, their backs bloody from the cat of nine tails, their hands and their feet in stocks, and it was the middle of the night and they couldn't sleep anyway, so they had a praise service. And they started praising God. I don't know whether it was because of the pitch of their voice or the loudness, but the next event that happened was an earthquake. Praising God, God shook the prison, and the jailer comes running saying, what must I do to be saved? You see? Now I'll tell you something. You get a combination like that. You get people who are beaten and hands and feet in stock praising God. And then God sends an earthquake or some other phenomenon. And you are going to have people asking why. I would even say to you that the earthquake wasn't, that was just sort of the climactic event. This jailer had to be doing some thinking when he knew how he'd beaten these men and their feet and hand and stocks and hear them in there praising God that had to make an impact upon him the earthquake just gave, was the last thing in the, in the story he comes running saying wow whatever you got I want it tell me about it you see that's really where we're at in terms of this kind of thing when you think in terms of the sorrow that people experience. Paul spoke of the fact that he enjoyed sorrow in his life, yet always rejoicing, he said, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul knew what it was to suffer where there was loss of health. I think so often of the stories, that, the things that pastors have related for years about the Apostle Paul and the possibility that as he came to the coast of Pamphylia and became very ill, as the book of Acts tells us on his uh, second missionary or first missionary journey, it could well be that Paul uh, had malaria. And people who have had malaria sometimes are prone to uh, early cataracts. And uh, there are those that believe that Paul had cataracts on his eyes, something that at that time was inoperable and uh, that his thorn in the flesh mentioned in 2 Corinthians 12 may have been this physical ailment. Now, no one can prove that. Some of that is speculation. But there's a possibility of it at least, which helps me identify it since I have cataracts in both my eyes. Uh, I uh, can identify a little bit with the hindrance that it is. And Paul said to the Lord three times, Lord, won't you take this thing away? I don't think because it hurt necessarily, because it doesn't hurt, uh, 
but because it's a nuisance. And uh, you'd, you'd think that you'd be better off if you, would, if you wouldn't have this kind of a problem. And it was then that the Lord came to, to Paul. And this has been a great comfort to me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul, you're going to be more effective, not less effective, because of this. I think in terms of my present uh, ailments with cancer. And, and, you know, I tell people, I'm not asking people to pray that God will heal me. You know what I want? I want God to give me precisely the measure of strength that will most glorify Him and that will make me as effective as He wants me to be for His own glory. Now, if that means that He heals me, that's fine. But I, what I, this is what this is all about. My health isn't the issue. The issue is, is God going to be glorified? The issue is, is the word going to get out? That's the issue. So focus upon that, not upon my sickness, you see. And that's what Paul learned. Do you know what he said then? He said, most gladly, therefore, do I rejoice in my suffering, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I'm weak, then am I strong. That's what it's all about. And you see, if some of you go through a time of loss, and you do it with a spring in your step, a smile on your face, rejoicing in your heart, praising God, the unbeliever is going to stand back and he's going to say, what is this guy? He's lost everything and he's still praising God. There must be something special. Let me see this thing which has come to pass. And that's your opportunity to say to him, look, the reason is because I don't have an earthly focus, I have a heavenly one. The reason is because God is the same. The reason is because God is glorified in the midst of it. The reason is because to win you is more important to me than a million dollars. See? That's what it's about. So learn, learn. It's not easy to learn these lessons, but learn what God does. Here's a great one. Hebrews chapter 10. Have you checked this one out late, late, lately? Hebrews chapter 10. It's one of my, my favorite little patterns that you find in Scripture. And it's in, in Hebrews 10, verse 34 is what we're after, but we're going to back up just a little bit. Verse 32. It says in verse 32, remember the former days. He's taking these people back now to the early part of the church. This is first century Jews that are under persecution now. But he goes way back a little bit, and he says, let's kind of regroup and go back, okay? Remember the former days. When after being enlightened, that's just another word for them coming to know Christ in a personal way. After being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. In those early days, most people who faced the reality of uh, uh, being a Christian also faced the reality of being persecuted to some degree. So they had a great conflict of sufferings. And there are two sources of that suffering. First of all, partly, that is some of you, by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulation. The word spectacle is the word theatron. It means that you were like on a stage before the whole world. Everyone is watching. And up there, you, you had direct persecution upon your life. You were, some of you killed, some of you had, had, had uh, uh, befallen imprisonment and beatings and all of the rest. And it's like you were up on the stage. Some of you went through that. And there were some of you who didn't experience that. But there's another area of suffering because you were sharers with those who were so treated. Your friends were up there. Your husband or your wife or your children were the ones that were being killed. 
And so even if you weren't beaten directly, you went through the trauma of being identified or fellowshipping with those that were being beaten. And that was not an easy thing. All right? And then verse 34. You showed sympathy to the prisoners. The people that were thrown in jail, you showed sympathy to them. And because you treated them right, here's what happened. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Here's a homeowner, all right? And his, his friend is thrown in prison for taking a stand for Jesus Christ. And this man, even though he knows it will make him a marked man, goes and takes food to that friend in prison. And the authorities come and they say, if you're a friend of his, you're an enemy of the state. And we're going to take your property. Now I want to ask you, right now today, if you had a cop knock on your door and say, we are taking your property because you're a Christian, how many of you would have just a joy well up in your heart? No, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. You've got to think about that a little while, right? But these people joyfully suffered the seizure of their property. Why? Because they had their value system right. They knew that they had a heavenly land that had treasure where no one could take it away. I know that in that time when that would happen to you, God would give you grace for it. I'm confident of that. Right now you don't have that grace because you're not going through it. But God will give you that grace when the time comes as long as you maintain the heavenly value system and you're laying up treasures on heaven rather than treasures upon earth. If you're too attached to it, you may have trouble with joy. But you see, there's another area where deprivation has come and yet joy was the result. Peter told the church, <coughs> don't think it's strange when fiery trial comes and takes you, but rejoice, rejoice inasmuch as you're partakers of Christ's suffering. And then afterward, there's the reward. Now, the people of God had had an opportunity now to review in their mind what it would be to have deprivation in the wilderness experience. But God is preparing them for a new experience. They have had adversity. And they have learned that it is right to praise God in adversity. They now are going to have abundance. And if anything, that's going to be the harder lesson. Some people have a hard time standing prosperity. Some people, it is far easier to praise God when the chips are down than it is to remember to praise God when things go well. As I study my Bible, I am absolutely convinced that God delights in lavishing blessing upon his people. But whenever he does it, he does it to peril, to a jeopardy. Because men tend in the foxhole to call upon God. When things are tough, men tend to say, Oh God! Won't you help me? 
Even atheists will say, oh God, when they're frightened. Ever notice that? But when everything's well, when everything is fine, the great danger is this, and the text will go on to teach more about this. You forget God, and when you forget God, you fail to praise God. And when you fail to praise God, it is not long and you will begin to believe that it's you who did this instead of God. Pride comes up in the heart. And God doesn't want that to happen. So he's seeking to prepare these people as he seeks to prepare us for the prosperity test. On one hand, we ask the question, can a man go hungry and still praise God? Can a man be thirsty and still praise God? Can a man be under pressure and still praise God? But this new lesson, can a man prosper and still remember to praise God? Now, there are some of you saying, well, I'd like to try it. I wish God, wish God would put me to that test. I'd like to have all the abundance in the world, and I, I'd see how I would do. I, I remember John MacArthur uh, uh, telling me a few uh, years ago now, he said that the church, in a time where things were going very, very well in the church, they, they gave him a huge increase in salary. In fact, it was close to doubling his salary in a given year. And uh, John uh, is not much of a materialist at all. He was kind of shocked when they told him what they were going to do. And he says, good night, why are you going to do that? Well, I said, you know, John, you've been teaching us that we ought to, in times of difficulty, trust God, and also to not forget to keep trusting Him when things are prosperous. And we've had some occasion, as individuals in the church, we've had an occasion to be tested by that prosperity, and we find out it's pretty tough. And we want to put you to the test to see how you do as well. <laughs> so he had an opportunity to suffer for Jesus' sake. And that... <laughs> The question again is, if you prosper, does it make you more generous? If you prosper, does it make you more kind, more tolerant, more loving? When you prosper, does it, does it make you to be less materialistic or more materialistic? The person who's prospering should be less. He doesn't have to worry about, about anything. Isn't that right? And if he, so if he, has, if he has prosperity... That's a wonderful opportunity for him to, to give it away. I have a friend who purposed before God years and years ago that he would simply give himself an increase in standard of living every year that would be fair. But everything else that came into his pockets he'd give to missions. He has put thousands upon thousands, upon thousands of dollars into missions. He and his family lived quite modestly. He passed the test of prosperity. He knew that the overplus was not for him. Boy, it's tough to learn that. And our nation is in great jeopardy trying to learn it because we have had prosperity. If you don't think so, compare us with Bangladesh. We, we consume 90% of all of the products of the world, over 10% of the people. Somehow or another, something's seriously wrong here. 
We spend more on dog food in this country than some other countries with ten times the population spend on food for all the people. Tragic. We aren't very good at remembering God in our prosperity. There's very precious little of the American people who even know what Thanksgiving is all about, right? Do they thank God? No, they watch football. Do they bow their head before God? By the way, I'm not against football, mind you. I'm just against forgetting God. I don't care whether you do it on Wednesday or Thursday or, or whenever, but for goodness sakes, the whole principle of Scripture is that we are to continually be praising God. Whenever God, whenever anything happens to us, good or bad, we are to be saying to the Lord, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We've got to learn that. That's the test of prosperity. And our country has gone a long ways since the Plymouth Rock days. And this hasn't been a good direction. And all nations will stand before God in judgment and God will turn into hell the nations that forget God. We're in great jeopardy of being such a nation. Now, if you look at verse 7 of our text, I draw you back to that now in Deuteronomy 8, you'll notice that God does a fascinating thing here in that He describes in a single word, the land. He says, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Now I'll tell you something. When you say something is good, I'll wonder about it. People say, boy, we went to a good restaurant the other night. We go and it's lousy. Everybody has their own tastes. And therefore, what you think is a good restaurant may not be what I think is a good restaurant. And uh, so get used to that, that we are relative in our understanding. But when God says something is good, it's good. When he created the world, he said this was good, that was good, the other thing was good. And it's quite an interruption in his whole pattern of thinking in Genesis chapter, chapters 1, 2, and 3 when God says it's not good. Whoop, where'd that come from? It was not good because God had made man and it was not good that man be alone. That's when it says in the text, God, and this is the Hebrew now, designed according to specifications a help, make, a help suitable for him. Let's see, how tall should she be? Let's measure Adam, see how tall he is. Let's make her a little shorter. It was only after he had made woman that he then again said, this is good. God made everything good. You say, well, why is it such a mess today? Because sin spoiled it. Sin spoiled it. Sin ruined the race and ruined the planet. And if anybody want to complain about anything from the environment to the high cost of living, they should remember what sin has done. And sin continues to do it. And the only solution is to go on a new economic schedule, and that is God's pattern. God's plan. And until this nation does it, they're going to be, continue to be in a mess. So just be used to it. But God is going, 
God says something is good, you'd better believe it's good because God doesn't make junk, all right? And he says, I'm taking you out of this wilderness experience. I am taking you out of adversity. I'm putting you into abundance. And let me describe for you what I mean when I say good. Now look at it. It's a land that has brooks of water, has fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills. People go to the Holy Land today and they say, well, it's not like that at all. Now, if you go to the irrigated areas or the upper Jordan Valley, up in the area of the Hula Valley there above the Sea of Galilee, you'll find that, that there are abundant crops just like there was in that day. But you know what's happened over in the Holy Land? All you have to do is read Leviticus 26 and you can figure it out. God said if they followed after idols, he's going to withhold the rain. The most fertile soil in the world today is in the land of Israel. If they were to receive an abundance of rain in any given year, it would the desert would blossom like a rose, literally. There is an abundance of water potential. But God changed the weather patterns when they went into idolatry, and to this day, it's a desert. By the way, have you ever thought of what your house is worth if we have five more straight years of drought? Have you ever thought of what this valley is going to be like if God withholds the rain? This is the biggest idolatry in all of the United States in this valley. And if God withholds rain from a nation because of, because of idolatry, we'd better wonder. May we pray for God's mercy. Everything you've got is worth nothing if this becomes a desert. See how dependent on God we are? So when it rains, let's be praising God. And when it doesn't rain, let's be praying to God. And that way we'll focus upon God and not upon all the material things we have. Because they're not going to be worth hooey tomorrow if we don't get some rain. We've been squeaking by. Can't do it forever. But God says, when you go into that land, I've taken care of everything. And you're going to have an abundance of water. Not only that, but you're going to have something else. You're going to have an abundance of grain wheat and barley for food and flour. You're going to have an abundance of fruit, grapes and figs and pomegranates. Pomegranates were kind of a red pulp fruit that was a little sour to eat, although some people acquired a taste for it. They, they kind of had an acidy, sweet kind of flavor. But they made sherbets and wines out of pomegranates and made a very, 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 very good sherbet and wine. And the result was that the people could have those delicacies as a result of that. There's abundant oil from the olives. You mix that with the flour and make bread and so on. And abundant honey for sweetener. They were dependent upon honey as a sweetener. God took care of that. He didn't want them eating flat food. He wants them to have a little spice to life, a little honey, a little sweetener. Not only that, but he tells us then that it'll be a land where you can eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land in who, uh, whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. There's going to be abundance of everything. There's going to be abundance uh, of minerals for weapons and for vessels and for farm implements. And the vast stores of these metals can still be found south of the Dead Sea in Israel today. All of this in abundance. God says it's a good land. A land that I'm going to give to you because I promised it. 
to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Now, God says something else about it, by the way. He says there are three things that I want you to do. The first is I want you to eat. There are times when God will withhold food, that God, as he did in the wilderness, to teach people to trust him. But that's not God's ordinary pattern. Ordinarily, he wants you to eat. He wants you to eat. He wants you to have the food. He doesn't mind you having abundance. Paul learned this. He says, I've learned. I've learned when things are going well to be full, to enjoy a full belly. And then when things aren't going so well to be hungry and to enjoy that condition. I, I, I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul knew what it was to have both the abundance and to have the adversity. And it didn't bother him a bit. He went along by faith on this level. Some people go up here when things are going well, go down here when things are going bad, up, down, up, down, up, down. They never hit that plane where we walk by faith and not by sight. God wants you to do that. But you know, God used food often as an illustration of spiritual fulfillment. Christ, of course, in John chapter 6, introduced himself as the bread of life, which was even superior to the manna in the wilderness, and said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and you will have eternal life. So Christ was, was very clear that, that the application of the whole matter of eating food is not pomegranates and olive oil. It has to do with a much deeper lesson. And though this is talking about literal pomegranates and literal olive oil, yet God wants us to learn in the midst of it that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There is not only the physical hunger that needs to have you eat, but there is the, the spiritual hunger that needs to be fed. And God wants you to eat there as well. And so if you look over at Isaiah 55 as an example, you see how, how God desires to, to fulfill the spiritual needs of his people. Ho, he says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. God wants us to be eating not delicately from the spiritual well. He wants us to drink abundantly from Christ came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundant. Christ has offered to us more than physical food. The physical food, he'll take care of that. He'll supply all our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But you remember in the time of Amos that God says there'll be a famine in the land, but not a famine of bread, but a famine of hearing my words. That's the greatest famine of all and the famine that we're very much in danger of seeing happen in this country today. God wants us to feed, but he wants us not only to feed on physical food, but to hunger and thirst after righteousness so that we can be filled. There's a wonderful song in our hymnals, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. And one line of that first verse says, Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me. You see, in, in, in making spiritual application to this quite physical situation here, 
God is saying to his people today, I've got brooks, I've got wheat, I've got the finest of the wheat, I've got minerals, I've got everything you ever need. Find it in me. Find it in my word. Find it in your life in Jesus Christ. He wants to feed us. There's no reason in this day and age for people to starve spiritually because God has given us so much in abundance. But he doesn't just want us to feed. The second thing he wants us to do is be satisfied. He fills the hungry soul with goodness. He fills, satisfies the longing heart. He wants us to know the satisfaction that he brings. One of the things that amazes me as much as any other single thing in this day and age in which we live is that Christian people can be satisfied with, with nothing but the appetizers. And the main course is sitting there and they don't even notice. And guess what? There's dessert after that. And all of it he's provided. And people are satisfied to have the, the, the potato skins when they can have the abundance of all that he supplies clear down to the delicious chocolate cake at the end. He wants us to have the whole meal. He wants us to be satisfied. He wants us to be filled. He does that physically. And he's provided so abundantly for us. Have we praised him for it? But even in the spiritual realm, I'm absolutely amazed as people take in and take in and take in that they, they throw away God's mean course. They're just saying, I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm going to heaven someday and everything's going to work out in the end. And they never, you know, Paul never talked that way. Never. I believe that Paul knew he was saved from the moment he got, got upon his face on the Damascus Road. I believe Paul was saved through and through. But you know, he kept talking about things like pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He kept talking about being diligent, about going toward the goal and moving toward the mark and finishing his course and on and on and on. He was a man who had a passion for God and a passion to serve God and he would not be satisfied with mediocrity. And that Christians today can be satisfied with a kind of slop that is being offered to so many people today and saying, oh, I'm, I'm getting my good fill. And they don't even crack the book and they have no idea what God's agenda is for them and they know nothing about victory in their Christian life and they don't know anything about the abundance that Christ offers and they live their lives that way and they die that way. And they're in a wilderness, my friend, satisfied with manna and never tasting the finest of the wheat. It's a tragedy of our day. We have so much junk food spiritually. And people are saying, it satisfies my need. You set them down before some porterhouse and they vomit because they're not accustomed to it. It's a tragedy. I want to tell you, God wants you not just a Christian. He wants you a satisfied Christian. And when you hear people talk these days with all the griping and grumbling that go on, you know it's an index to their character. When they gripe and they grumble, they have never found the fountain of living water. Because that satisfies. He's promised it. 
And when they're satisfied with something less, it's no wonder they've got nothing to praise God about. But the third thing, the third thing that is spelled out so clearly, when you have eaten and when you are satisfied, you shall baraka. Remember that word? What does it mean? It means to bend. It means to bow. It means to praise God. You see, the word baraka means to bend. The scripture speaks of God blessing us. Remember when we mentioned this? When God blesses us, it is God bending when Jesus Christ came to earth and he provided salvation, God bent down to meet your need. When God supplies your every need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, God bends down to supply your need. When God bestows upon you the richness of his blessing, when he brings these people into the promised land, as he brings you into the abundant life, when he gives his Holy Spirit, when he gives his word, it is God stooping, bending to your need. That's Baraka, God's blessing us. What does God want us to do in return? Bow before him and worship him. After what he's done for you, how can you do less? After he has stooped to reach you in your need, how can you stand proudly and erect and say, I did this? The danger is if you don't bend, you will forget. And if you forget, then you will not praise. And if you don't praise, you will soon be proud and arrogant and think that you're the one that has the world by the tail and you don't need God. And that's disaster because that's when God changes the blessing into a bane. That's when God brings judgment upon his people. God says, I want you to bend. I want you to bend. I took my Bible and I started looking at the texts that talk about God feeding us, both physically and spiritually. And the texts that started talking about God bringing us to satisfaction. There's an amazing amount of texts that talk about how God wants to satisfy us, both physically and spiritually. And I started looking at the use of Baraka in the Old Testament. Oh, my friend, God has stooped so many times. We stoop so seldom. Are you in the habit of praising him? When things are tough, and they are sometimes for some of you, do you say, oh God, I hurt. I'm groaning inside, but my lips by faith are choosing to praise you because you are great, you are good, you are glorious, and your grace is sufficient. So I thank you. I praise you. And when the pressure comes and then is suddenly relieved and the abundance begins to flow, 
How about them? Do you get proud and forget God? Or do you remember to praise Him?